0: And just to be able to tell students a normal human is happy, sad, joyful, frustrated, angry, you know, that that's what we do, that we have emotions all day long and that all of those are great emotions.
1: Welcome to Sauce Talk, a podcast where I interview athletes and coaches and meditation teachers and practitioners and psychologists and anyone else who might have interesting things things to say about the overlaps between sports and mental life and living well in general. This is Billy Hansen, and today's episode is going to be an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Grassi. Dr. Grassi is a professor in the education department at Regis University, and she specializes in linguistic and culturally diverse education, and has done a lot of work educating migrant and refugee students, both in the U.S. and abroad. And so what she's really focused on is teaching teachers how to teach effectively. And I think that the kind of advice that she has to give and the insights that she has are not limited to just the classroom. And so if there's a coach listening to this, for all the coaches who are listening, or if you're a boss trying to teach your employees, I think that the messages that Dr. Grassi puts forth here on the podcast are relevant to all different types of teaching. And beyond her teaching expertise, she's also deeply passionate and experienced in mindfulness meditation. She's a trained mindfulness teacher, and she has a deep practice of her own. And she, as she says on the podcast here, she's focused on Spreading mindfulness into the schools and spreading it at the teacher level because she believes strongly in the evidence coming back showing that teachers who have mindfulness skills of their own are not only more effective in teaching mindfulness to their students, but they also it also enhances other teaching skills about presence in the classroom and being able to relay a message calmly and to have some mindfulness over your own teaching style. So I love this conversation. It's one of my favorite conversations I've had on the podcast so far. Here we talk about Dr. Grassi's teaching philosophy, differentiation in teaching uh, methods for giving all students adequate attention, and then we jump into meditation. And this is all interweaved with teaching philosophy too. We talk about the importance of sitting with the uncomfortable, the practice of acceptance in meditation the difference between intellectual and experiential or embodied understanding, which is, I think, a great insight that she has, implementing meditation into the classroom, mindful listening instead of fixing, the balance between being and doing, meditation in the age of distraction, the beauty of a messy daily practice, and how to sit when you don't want to and other topics. So, as always, if you'd like to stay in touch with my work, You can subscribe to these episodes on whatever your favorite podcast player is, whether that's Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, or Spotify. And it also helps me out to leave reviews on wherever you're listening to it, especially Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach new listeners. And I think the best way to stay in touch with my work is to subscribe to my newsletter, which comes out about once a week. And because I'm not on social media, this is the best way to be updated with new content or announcements. And anything else that I'm up to and I never spam anyone it's just a once a week content announcement so to subscribe there you can find that page at billyhansen.net forward slash newsletter and I'm also in the process of a pretty exciting partnership that's developing with the podcast but I think I'll save that for maybe the next episode to announce it so thank you for listening and for your support and without further delay here is Dr. Liz Grossi Okay, Dr. Grassi. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
0: My pleasure, and you can call me Liz.
1: Okay, all right. <laughs> so, what? Let's begin with uh, let's begin with your background. Could you just tell me a little bit about uh, like where you grew up, a little bit, however much you want to go into into this, and your academic pursuits, and then how you got into teaching.
0: Yeah. So I um, grew up in a real small town of a thousand people and um i went to college in california oh you know what billy i'm gonna stop that right now let me do something so this dog does not bark just a second yeah so i grew up in a small town in california of about a thousand people and um i was a high school dropout and i had a college accept me without a high school degree and it was really amazing and um, in this college, I got a degree in Spanish and English and didn't know what to do. So went into teaching by default. Mm. And my first job was an all-boys Catholic school. And I was 22 and I looked like I was about 16. <laughs> and so that did not go over well. <laughs> and I went back and got a teaching license. And then I went over to Spain to teach.
1: Mm.
0: And um, I taught there for a lot of years and then came back to California and taught um, in Southern California, close to Santa Ana. I don't know if you know where that's it, between San Diego and Santa Ana Hmm. for many years. And it was through teaching that I really um, encountered a lot of frustrations, uh, working with other teachers and I was teaching kids who were immigrants and refugees, and also kids who had had a, were coming from really, really tough situations. And um, the teachers, the majority of teachers, did not understand the kids or where they were coming from. And so I thought the best thing I could do is go back to school, uh, get a doctorate, and then prepare teachers, future teachers.
1: Hmm. Nice. And uh, quickly, what I'm curious. Didn't know that you dropped out of high school. How did that come about? Yeah,
0: Yeah, you know, I was just not a great student (laughs) (laughs) at any level. And um, I just didn't want to (laughs) go. And so I was actually, I was really fortunate. I dropped out and a teacher at this school said, I'm going to send you to New York to study music. And I had this amazing mentor. So I'd get up at 5 a.m. and work as a waitress to support myself. And then I would spend eight hours a day playing piano with this incredible mentor Wow. and with the hopes of going to music school. But, um, I think not having a diploma was an issue and I ended up at a great school that accepted me. So mm. I didn't study music though. I started and then I didn't because I was afraid at that time that I wouldn't be able to make a living off of music. I don't know if that's true, but that was my fear.
1: Yeah. Do you still play the piano for fun?
0: I did. You know, I have two sons and I taught them piano and they didn't take to it very well. So I have a piano sitting here right now. It's a storage unit for many things. (laughs) I need to get back to it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And yeah, so quick little story. So you helped me right after I graduated from Regis. So after I graduated from Regis, you helped me get a... Job teaching at um, a camp, a summer camp in Spain, yeah. Santiago de mm-hmm. Compostela, and uh-huh. it was it was hilarious. Actually, it wasn't that surprising, <laughs> but it was hilarious. Just your reputation over there. I did not expect that. <laughs> basically, everyone in that school, when they found out that I knew you and I was your student, they would you know, go, oh my god, she's so amazing. How's she doing? And so <laughs> you really uh, you really made your mark in Spain, which I'm not surprised because you you made your mark at Regis too, but. Yeah, well, so, I think those ahead.
0: kids you were teaching in Spain, I taught them when they were like eight years old.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think you knew them when they were in their forties or thirties, yeah. right? That whole family. Yeah. yeah. They were great. Oh, goodness.
1: Yeah. yeah. Great, great people. So, yeah. So basically your job now, and this is how, so I was in the education department in Regis. I took a few classes with you. Um, mm-hmm. And so basically you're, like you said, teaching teachers how to teach. Yeah. I want to make this kind of a two-part conversation, the first of which is just about your teaching philosophy, and I think that will also relate to coaching, so if there are coaches, I know some of my listeners are coaches, I think that this could apply to coaching, because coaching really is just teaching, and then I also want to pivot to meditation and mindfulness, but let's start with your teaching philosophy, and I I understand this is kind of a broad, general question, but What are some of the pillars of your teaching philosophy?
0: Yeah, I think when I was younger, I had a very complex teaching philosophy. And now I think my philosophy is every student wants to be a good student, Hmm. period. No matter who is in your classroom, they're there because they actually want to be good students. Hmm. And it's the teacher's job to unlock access, for these students to unlock what they need in order to be quote-unquote you know productive achieving students mm. and so what I see a lot is um, teachers getting very frustrated with kids who are acting out or not doing the homework without looking at they all want to be good students but something's preventing them mm. you know why isn't the student doing the homework why is the student acting out Mm. And I think that philosophy has gotten me further than any complex philosophy about how I want to teach. And because the more I teach and the more years I've been doing it, it's just every student needs something completely different. Mm. And so if you go into the classroom with lack of a better word, love for every student that's there, no matter how they're showing up. Mm -hmm. And your job is to figure out how to help them show up as their best selves, Mm. then there's not one way to do it. Mm. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And yeah, that's something that in my limited experience coaching and just being on teams then obviously being in classrooms too, like there's, there's different philosophies of that in the coaching side as well, where... You know, the, probably the best coach that I've had and the coach that I learned from in my graduate program, Brady Bergerson. Mm-hmm. he had a pretty cool way of, of, you know, he had his principles and he, he knew what he liked. You know, he had non-negotiable things about his program, but he also adapted and you could see him kind of as, you know, in each season ad- adapting a little bit of a different style, you know, teaching. He, had, he, was, he was flexible so that he wasn't just cookie cutter, it's my way or the highway, and I thought that that was – that balance is interesting. So let's say, yeah, so yeah. this is a, a common issue that I know that we spoke, that you taught a lot about in your classes. But, you know, you've got students who are advanced in a given class um, and then students who are struggling for whatever reason. What Maybe you could say a few things about finding the balance between, you know, how do you walk that tightrope of pushing the students who need to be pushed but then not leaving behind the students who are, falling behind, and then not letting the students who aren't interested in the material take away from the students who are. Do you have anything to say about that?
0: Oh, I mean, there's a thousand tricks in the trade for that. And um, there's a lot of teachers whose specialization is differentiation, which is what you're talking about. How do you you modify the curriculum for every single student in your classroom? And honestly, there are some miracle workers out there as teachers who do that. Hmm. Um, I was in a little bit of a different situation because while everyone was at a different academic level, everyone in my classroom in California and in Spain were learning English. Hmm. And most of them were at the same level. Most of them were newcomers coming in. So as far as engagement, I mean, you have to know your students, to be able to engage them in what is interesting to them. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have to take the time to and I'm saying this knowing that on the secondary level teachers today have 150 students per day. Mm-hmm. And that's really really hard to do. In elementary, you know, you have a class, it's also very very hard. But it's making that effort to know what's going to spark that student, how do they learn? And then modifying the curriculum is easier once you know that. It's never easy, but you know, it's the same content, but how do I get this person who has better reading skills than speaking skills in English, can I find reading for them and then work on speaking and vice versa, If they have better speaking skills than reading skills, can I give them something, a speech that they're gonna do to perform, but still work on their reading skills. So. And it's also giving students choice. You know, Mm. what is of interest to you? Here's all your choices. What would you like to do with that? Mm. But there's a thousand different ways, which I know you know, Billy. So you could probably talk about it right here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that I noticed, too, about I I always became more interested in, let's say we had to write a paper. I was, yeah, I I always did better. It felt like less of a task and more exciting when the teacher gave us the freedom to explore a topic that was interesting. And my grandfather was a professor at Southern Oregon. What? Oh. And he, he always said that, that he, especially in the beginning, he just wanted his students to learn to love to write and learn to love to read. And he was less particular mm-hmm. about what they wrote about or what they read. Um, you know, he had boundaries of course, but he just wanted the students to do what they were interested in because it, if it feels forced you know, you hear stories about that all the time too, about like kids being forced to play an instrument growing up and then they hate it. (laughs) But if you, if it's your own passion, then it's a lot easier to work hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've had students even at the college level who aren't turning in the work and I'll call them and I'll go, okay, tell me why you're not turning in the work. And and I'll say, do you think it's boring? (laughs) And they'll say, yes. Okay. Well, how are you going to show me that you know the stuff? You know, mm-hmm. you figure it out then it's on you. And that seems to engage in more because, you know, I can't be engaging to everybody. Of course, I'm going to be boring to a lot of students. So they mm-hmm. got to also, you know, you got to figure out what engages them, just like you said.
1: Yeah. Or you can uh, use the popsicle sticks from hell method and traumatize <laughs> us Like <laughs> for the listeners. I'm sorry <laughs> that traumatized
0: you, but you did get called on equally.
1: <laughs> uh, for the listeners, she had a method of... Um, She'd ask a question and instead of calling on a hand. She would just randomly pull out popsicle sticks, and we all had our name on sticks. And I swear, I had like five of mine in there because I would be <laughs> sp- spacing out or tired from practice or something. And she'd call on me, and I'd be like, "Oh man, I wasn't listening." <laughs> but uh, you know
0: why I did that? Because well, I filmed myself teaching one time, and I was—I thought I was equally calling on everybody. Mm. And I was not. I was calling on those kids that were, and these were when I was teaching high school and middle school, that were jumping out of their seats and raising their hand. I called on them twice as much as I did the quiet children. And so I said, I can't do this anymore. We're going to equal it out. Yeah, that's why I started doing that.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. and uh, Mm -hmm. It's hard to hide in your classroom. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay, and then how did you become interested in meditation and mindfulness?
0: Oh, boy, uh, about 10 years ago, I had a friend Introduce me to mindfulness and it was a great we went to a class together and it was a great class. It was um the type of meditation where you label things and so this teacher brought us through everything. We're going to listen to sounds and label it as sounds. We're going to listen to body sensations, label those body sensations, you know, smells, label those smells. And that just immediately grounded me. Mm. And I knew in my life I needed some grounding. I think that's why I was really attracted to it. I'm the type of personality that I just go for it and Mm. there's not really a pause. Um, you know, your type of personality, Billy, is so great because you stop and you observe before you jump, and I'm exactly the opposite. I jump, <laughs> and then let's see what happens because it's, you know, fun and challenge. But that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. So I started there, and I liked it, and I was doing it. I needed to go deeper, and then I had this amazing opportunity to go to a Buddhist-inspired university and um, work there for three years, helping them set up mindfulness teacher licensure Hmm. and that was a huge um awakening for me and lesson for me as far as i walked in and they said oh what kind of meditation do you do and i told them they're like "Mm, no let's (laughs) start from zero (laughs) you're not really doing it (laughs) and they were great because they would do honest conversations with me you know things like that i they had you know, the whole thing of when you're being triggered, you just notice it mm. and um, I would tell them a situation, okay, I was triggered and I just noticed it and this is what I felt and they'd look at me and go, no, you have to actually really feel it, go back. <laughs> and so it was really good.
1: Nice, sounds like a Zen school or something. What, what were your um, misconceptions when you arrived to the school? What were some of the things that they pointed out that were in their view were not really the practice?
0: So they felt that I wasn't formal enough in my meditation. Hmm. I didn't know, I had the misconception that I think so many people do that. You do mindfulness to find peace, to find tranquility. And when I really started to study it and really delve into it and practice it, I think you do mindfulness to learn to sit with the uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's like the bottom line and you in through that through sitting in the yuck and the pain and the ugly that's how you find peace but i like so many people thought oh you meditate you clear your mind you will find peace and it never worked
1: (laughs) yeah that's uh yeah that's just a constant struggle and you know I, i think ironically us westerners are liable or like we're we're very vulnerable to that kind of trap. And I still struggle with that all the time because it's a paradox because ultimately if you meditate and you commit to the practice, you you know, scientifically you will become more peaceful, less reactive, Mm -hmm. a little happier. But the paradox is that on any given sitting, and especially when you start, it's not going to be flowers and roses and peace. And so that's why I think so many people, and I had trouble in the beginning, thankfully, I had a good sports psychologist who really pushed me to keep going. But I think a lot of people give up early because they sit down and because their mind's racing out of control, just like everyone's mind is. They think, oh, this I can't do this. This isn't for me. This is a waste of time. It's uncomfortable. I'm not peaceful. And so, yeah, I really try to hammer that home too. And another thing that I think compounds that problem is the way that it's marketed. Because just yeah. the, the, the way that meditation seems to have taken root in a lot of places here is through apps and Mm -hmm. books and a lot of those resources are really great but in order to get people's attention you've got to throw out the scientific benefits like oh do this and you'll make like 20 percent more money at your job or something right which is just not really the point um and so i think that discourages people but yeah i mean I, i go through that a lot when I'm I'll find myself sitting for the first 10 minutes just kind of waiting to be peaceful and then I have to you know, remind myself to sink back and just notice whatever it is so
0: right and it's in that middle way between aversion and grasping yeah. is always really hard because I think as Westerners we do both all the time mm-hmm. I don't like this I'm gonna do everything I can to make it stop I love this I'm gonna do everything I can to make it keep going and finding that that path of just, it is what it is right now, everything is impermanent, this is gonna go away, and being okay with it going away, or being okay with the ugly staying for a while. Yeah. And that's, I think that's really hard. And like you said too, when you first start out, I mean, the practice is in your mind wandering coming back, your mind wandering coming back, and coming back, and coming, that is the practice. Yeah. And I don't think anyone ever taught me that. Until I went to that university where they're like, yeah, well, yeah, that's the practice. Yeah. You know, no one has an empty mind. No one, you know, a monk who's been practicing his or her whole life still yeah. are coming back and coming back and coming back.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's as you start meditating, that is a really special feeling when you actually do notice it. And you're like, okay, even, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm just subtly subconsciously Wishing I felt better, like I'm just following my breath intently because I want to feel better. That that moment of dropping back and noticing that is such a freeing feeling, and it's kind of like a different kind of happiness or peace than you get from a nice bite of food or some the the, the, the common ways that we kind of chase chase good feeling or you know opening your phone and seeing you got ten new likes on your <laughs> Instagram post right. or something. So yeah,
0: it's yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's just. Ha- being peaceful or accepting exactly what's here. And that is so freeing when you get to the point where you can do it. And, and that really is, I mean, that's where a lot of the peace is.
1: Yeah. Just,
0: I can accept exactly what it is right now and it's okay. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And getting and understanding that on an experiential level rather than just a philosophical or intellectual level because mm. yeah it's one thing to to read meditation books and, th- and try to think those thoughts more than you think the other thoughts but there's something about the experiential side which is like a level deeper than our common understanding of things which is amazing when you when, when it happens
0: yeah experiential and embodied side yeah. i mean when you feel that deep in your body that just full acceptance yeah it is a sensation that you have
1: yeah yeah absolutely so how have you begun or how are you implementing mindfulness into your classrooms and well we'll start there so how, yeah how are you implementing mm-hmm. mindfulness in your classrooms
0: so when i was at the university and i think you were in my class at that time mm-hmm. i would start by doing meditations in the classroom and right now meditation in the classroom is the big new thing in public schools hmm. and what i found is that there ha- you know teachers are teaching meditation without practicing themselves yeah. and i'm now making a big shift that really it's the teachers that have got to practice meditation. Not mm-hmm. that meditation is not good for the kids. Absolutely, it's great for everybody. There's no doubt the research is pretty definitive on that, but if teachers aren't practicing it themselves, then it's not quite effective. And that I, I really struggle with. I am teaching classes in mindfulness right now at the university, but that balance between teaching and at the same time noticing what's going on at yourself with yourself at all times. So checking in and teaching and checking in and teaching. I still, I find that hard because my whole life as a teacher has been to look at the students and notice Mm -hmm. the students and feel what's going on in the classroom because you can feel the energy. You know, is it shifting? Are people happy? Are they bored? What's going on? But to have to do that with myself too. And I know you teach meditation. Do you you find that? Are you able to do that smoothly? Check in with yourself, teach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I still consider myself much more of a a student of meditation than a teacher of meditation. And Mm -hmm. I do think, I mean, a lot of the traditions, you know, the Buddhist traditions warn against people who aren't far enough down the path teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that there's some wisdom in that. However, I also think that it can help even if you just learn how to follow your if you know the basics and you can help your students know the basics, that helps immediately. So basically, I think I'm qualified to teach athletes what helped me as an athlete and to teach young people what helped me as a, you know, in, in young adulthood or the end of my adolescence. Right. But I, I, I'm careful to not try to like I'm not teaching the stuff that I'm practicing, if that makes sense. I think I'm a, you know, I'm learning, you know, like the stuff that I'm doing myself, which is longer sits, you know, more, very, a more like very dedicated practice, that stuff, I feel like I'm totally a student. So yeah, to get back to your your question, it is interesting noticing how I feel in front of people who I'm teaching. Um, and I do think that the meditation helps with that. If I, mm-hmm. if I, you know, you can feel the energy in the room, but also notice if I'm Am I saying things in the hopes that I will gain validation back from the group? Am I trying to, you know, uh, am, I, am I worried about how my message is being received or am I in a space of, of giving and just, I feel like I, I am a more effective teacher and the the lessons, quote unquote, lessons go better when I'm in a more relaxed, mindful state with the intention of just offering what I have to say. Did that mm-hmm. answer your question?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, wh- how does your, um, how do you think your classrooms have changed since you began mm-hmm. adopting mindfulness as a method for teaching?
0: Yeah. I think it's more how has my teaching changed
1: mm-hmm.
0: since I've done mindfulness? And I wish so badly knowing what i know now that i had been a mindfulness practitioner when i was teaching in high school and middle school mm. because what it does for me is it helps me broaden a little bit so rather than freezing under tension or leaving my body under tension or not paying attention it gives me the chance to take a deep breath and just notice what's going on around so i can see the whole picture and um, I think that has changed. I'm still a teacher who I have a lot of energy and I bring things, but I seem to be okay now with longer pauses, hmm. uh, more silence, really allowing, so one of the things that happens when you're a teacher is how do you get students to answer deeply in, with long answers, with keeping the rest of the class engaged Mm. so um just in what happens is when you're calmer as a teacher the students are calmer and able to settle a little bit more with that Mm. so um when i taught um, public school i taught kids who some of them came from really really hard situations and sometimes they would tell me things, and I just, I, I wanted these kids to succeed so badly mm. that rather than just stopping and saying, tell me what that feels like for you, tell me what's going on and doing deep, mindful listening, I would try to take action to fix the situation. Mm. And so that, that is a big part of mindfulness for me now. I don't have to fix anything. Listening sometimes is the answer. Sometimes you have to take action, definitely. But so many students just want to be listened to. And so being able to mindfully listen instead of taking action and just really hear them, I think makes a big difference to students. I think it makes a big difference in the classroom as well. Not to say I still don't move quickly and I still use the popsicle sticks. But.
1: <laughs> Poor kids. Uh, that, that's, that's such a good point. It's interesting you bring that up because that's something that I've actually been working on in my own relationships for some time now. I know, and this probably has to do with mindfulness too. I noticed that exact same tendency when a loved one or a friend came with me to me with some issue, my initial instinct was, okay, like the, you know, the, the analytic data science part of my brain fires and it's like, all right, you got to do this. And then you do this and then read this book and like, <laughs> and then, but then I realized like, okay, this is a person who just, I just need to give them space and tell you know express love and that will and like maybe they'll f- ask for a tip and you know I, I might not even know what's best for them how, how how would i know like i'm not in their shoes maybe maybe this this book or this regiment wouldn't be what's right so yeah i love what you said there about rather than trying to fix just mindful listening i think that's something we can all think about
0: yeah it you know it reminds me of a story from teaching. I think you've probably heard me say this in class, but there was, um, I taught Spanish and I taught English and in my classes, you know, the kids were kids and they would roll their eyes. And I would make a joke that if you roll your eyes, you're going to have to come clean the chalkboards back in the day when they had chalkboards (laughs) and, you know, um, I would always arrive to school an hour early so I could prep and get ready, and I always was very future-oriented, what am I going to do do, do today, action, action, action. Mm-hmm. And I get to school, and there's this young man waiting for me, and he says, I said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm here to clean your boards. And I didn't even pause. I didn't even broaden my perspective. I just immediately said, are you kidding me? You are a straight-A student. You don't need to clean my boards. You go play and have fun. And then 15 minutes later, I thought, no high school, middle school student comes to you to clean your boards in the morning Mm -hmm. unless there's something going on. So I ran to the office and I said, you know, let me know what's going on with this student. And the student was homeless and probably came to me to look for a place to stay, a, a secure classroom. He, you know, he perhaps needed a place in that morning. And because I didn't pause, because I didn't breathe, because I just froze and thought, this is a great student. Of course, the student doesn't need to help me. I've got prepping to do. I didn't hear the student. I didn't hear the true message. And, you know, that was 30 years ago. And Mm -hmm. I still remember it deep in my heart because Mm -hmm. I feel like I had one chance. And that's where I say, I wish I'd known mindfulness at that time. Because it would have given me the pause to notice, you know, what is what's the situation? Let's broaden a little bit. Let's stop. Let's reflect. Let's think, instead of moving to action, and yeah, and and that's why I, I and I have a thousand stories like that, hmm. that where if I had practiced mindfulness, if I had had practiced deep listening instead of going to action, I would have been much more effective
1: hmm that's yeah that's that's amazing and what a yeah what a powerful story i didn't have this written down i didn't think about this beforehand but i'm i'm being dragged in that direction I, i feel inclined to ask you what so this is something that you know i've been thinking more about lately it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on it so let's just take your situation or your path like you know i've 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 noticed now that you have you carry with you an amazing reputation in both colorado and in spain you're very successful in your career and you are you have great energy you're motivated you're taking action you have you know all kinds of great successes what how do you how are you trying to cultivate the relationship between doing and achieving and then just being Mm, these days that's such a good question
0: (laughs) oh boy um so I think that is every day. There's situations to practice being, and um, I think it, it's, it's three part. It's being, uh, it's pausing, and taking action. And I think every day I'm presenting with opportunities to do that. Hmm. So perhaps you get an email from work of someone who is uh, not happy with something you're doing, and can i be and notice what i'm feeling with this email can i pause and try to find a response that causes no harm if possible like that is my goal how can you take action that is not harmful Mm -hmm. and sometimes you know it takes a long long pause and a long time of noticing what you're feeling before you can take action so i I, that's such a good question and i have to recognize that i'm someone who will never stop taking action and that especially is going to happen if i think there's a social issues social justice issue going on um i'm going to jump but now i'm trying to jump after i notice what i'm feeling and pausing to make sure it's something that is not gonna harm anybody. Hmm. And I mean, there's some injustices in the world where you do have to just stand up. I mean, you look at what's happening right now in the world hmm. um, and we have protests and they are necessary right now because the injustices are long and there's a history and it's got to stop. So that is that is an action that needs taking. Hmm. But I'm trying to find, and I think, I think you can do both. I mean, your question's so good. But don't you think that you can do both, that you can take action at the same time that you're noticing what you're feeling and noticing – like, if you're not really noticing what you're feeling, I think your intuition and in your body is going to tell you when you need to stop or when yeah. you need to take a different direction. I'm hoping.
1: Yeah. yeah <laughs> no, I love that answer. I, I'm i still working this out too because I definitely have the, the doer I mean, mentality. I mean, we have different temperaments, but I have been – I've drawn a lot of my, you know, self worth from athletic achievements, and then, you know, transitioning into academic, and then getting a good job, and now trying to work on this book, and a lot of it yeah. is is push, 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 and then you don't really know which direction you're you're you know why are you why are you ultimately doing this. But I agree that yeah, I mean there there there's also a misconception that. Meditation isn't a solvent that's just going to solve all of the world's problems. Rags. I think if everyone meditated we'd see a lot of change happen quickly But there there's also a role to play for other things and you, I mean first of all we just have to develop a society in where people have the time and freedom And luxury to meditate and it's unfortunately Not everyone has access to that and that's so mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's enough of a motivation if you think meditation is the the core or or like the meditative attitude the other thing i'd say is for me it's you know if i'm working on data science am i trying to get through it am i doing it in order to achieve some future imaginary state of happiness or am i just really focused on the problem that i'm working on trying to be mindful of you know there there's another special feeling a kind of like the flow state feeling of whatever you're doing, whether like you said, like it's if it's in service or if it's in um exercise or being with someone else, it's that feeling of losing yourself in that activity right um, mm-hmm. that's that I think supplements the practice and actually I, I asked Barry Gillespie this when I met with um which he's a meditation teacher in Boulder, and you and I sat at a retreat with him and I, mm-hmm. I had coffee with him sometime last year and asked him a similar question about my own path. And I thought I was going through thoughts about how like, wow, I really should maybe like, you know, I was having these thoughts that sometimes roll through my brain where I should just sell my car and quit my job <laughs> and meditate you know, for like six months straight or something. And mm-hmm. he uh, basically said, you know, that, that, that is a path that some people take, but there's also the, the Buddhist tradition of being a householder where you know the monks do the meditation all the time and the householders support them and they, they work and he he laid out some of the, the, the principles of that, which is you practice daily, non-negotiable, you have your daily practice. You have an attitude of service and generosity. So you you know, you earn a a living that you feel ethically okay with and then you donate, you know, you're you're generous with your earnings. You aren't in debt and then you just live an ethical life. And the, the framework that he laid out, I, th- I, don't, I don't think I'm capturing all of it, but it was really reassuring in this frame of like, you know, I can make other things part of my practice. Another thing he asked was like, okay, like I asked him how much I should be practicing. And the first thing he says, well, it was, well, how much, you know, I, to me, I, I think of practice as formal sitting practice, studying. So how much are you reading and, and researching? And then also service. He said, you know, service is part of your practice. And so, oh, um, yeah, so I thought that was a good way to, to frame it.
0: He's a great teacher. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a good way to frame it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm still with you, Billy, I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. I am teaching meditation, but I'm still learning. And there's a lot of questions like that, right? Like is being ambitious, like you were talking about and wanting to move forward, is that okay? Yeah. And can you do it mindfully? And are you know? Is it mindful if you're really listening to if you have that embodied in you and you're really listening to your body and and really noticing what's around? Is is it okay? Is yeah. it is it the right path? Yeah. Yeah. There's no answers.
1: <laughs> uh, to to not know is to know, as the Zen would say. Right. Zen, Zen teachers. <laughs> um, so how? I guess this is a question that I already sort of know what your answer will be, but I think it's worth going into is like, how critical do you think meditation is for children in this modern age of the smartphone and the distractions?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the main things we talk about is to start to notice why you're picking up your cell phone. Uh, what are the feelings behind it? Because there have been studies out now that are showing that that's, you know, one of the reason why kids are looking at technology is to try to not feel what they're feeling. Mm. And um, I think I think we have generations of kids now because of technology that may not be in touch. They may not be embodying what's going on around them and they may not be in touch with their emotions. And it's really easy when you have a feeling like boredom to go to your cell phone. Yeah. So, and is it okay to be bored? I mean, it's almost like we're teaching uh, kids, it's not okay to be bored. You've got to have something, you know, one thing when I start teaching class, I ask, I take a poll, how many of you have been taught that it's not okay if you're not happy, that we should be happy all the time and everybody raises their hand hmm. and just to be able to tell students a normal human is happy, sad, joyful, frustrated, angry, you know, that that's what we do that we have emotions all day long, and that all of those are great emotions. And I think with technology, kids will feel something a little bit uncomfortable and they'll go right to technology. And I think it's scary. And, you know, of course, you know, I'm an old person saying this, right? I didn't grow up with technology. And I think the youth would argue with me greatly on this one. Mm. But I don't see a lot of space and time for kids to just be to be bored i mean being bored leads to creativity that yeah. space and there's not a lot of that going on and maybe boredom leads to what you were talking about flow states can you get into flow state if you are constantly picking up your phone does it interrupt that ability to do flow state yeah and can you do i mean you work in technology can you find flow state on technical technological gadgets i mean are you able to do it on a computer? Do you find it there,
1: like you would on yeah, the computer. Yeah, I mean, example? if if I'm if I'm writing, if I'm typing, and I get really focused, like
0: you're writing, okay, yeah, yeah.
1: or coding. If, if it's if I'm very focused on, I think coding is a beautiful practice if if you're really focused on it. Um, but and both of those are creative. Yeah, but that's yeah. not that's very different from opening Twitter, <laughs> right? Uh, so. Yeah, this has been something that I, I don't know if I'm especially um, vulnerable to these addictions, but I, th- I think, I mean, one of the the kind of surface level horrors of a meditation practice is to keep colliding with things about yourself that are uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so just, I've noticed, you know, in the last couple of years or so, just how easily i am f- my i can go into that kind of like fog of technology and um, so youtube's a good example for me like i will be coding and actually happy to be working hard on something challenging and i'll get stuck and i'll you know youtube is a great resource for tutorials so i'll think okay i need mm-hmm. to learn how to do this function on youtube so i'll open youtube with the intention of of searching for the function and then eight videos pop up fed by the (laughs) algorithms, which are each of them, or at least half of them feel like they need to be watched right now. Uh, And and so (laughs) I then will like 25 minutes later, wake up from be like, wow, how the hell did that happen? I just got like lost in these algorithms. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, actually, by the time this comes out, I think I will have posted an essay that um, is about how I think social media is making politics and, Discourse impossible. Um, and so mm. that'll be, a, mm. I think, kind of a controversial essay, but it, it should be out if listeners want to find it. But thinking about naming it, it's time to protest social media. So you can look for that. Mm. But, um,
0: yeah. Have you, Billy, ever, when you're in the rabbit hole of YouTube, for example, stopped and noticed what you're feeling?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And what are you feeling? It's not a good feeling. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's kind of a haze. Like you said, mm. like, like you mentioned, it's like you're not really feeling life. You're kind of just in this kind of, I don't know. It's like you're not, you don't have a clear mind. You're not being creative. You're not, you're not in a space of love or connection. It's just distraction, um, basically. And not to say that everything on YouTube is bad, but the way the algorithms work, it, it is. I mean I've studied this and I actually write code that's so I know kind of how the the sausage is made and mm. yeah the algorithms care nothing about your mental health they care nothing about you know connecting people they they, they care about clicks and time that you spend on the app and how how many times mm-hmm. you log on so and unfortunately mm-hmm. they've, they've all found that the 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 content that, that is the stickiest is content that either directly Reinforces your current beliefs, or content that is so such a cartoon version of the opposite that it makes you lash out at the person on Facebook who you actually, you know, like in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then you know, for me too, it's like NBA highlights. You know, I my YouTube algorithm feeds me NBA highlights that I just I'm <laughs> addicted to. So um, yeah, so we're getting kind of out of it here, but I, I really think that this is a important part of the modern struggle and i'm becoming increasingly kind of uh, extreme on my views about how destructive these things are becoming so
0: yeah it's interesting to hear that from a young person like yourself Mm -hmm. i know i'm really scared and at the same time i have great hope in the youth Mm -hmm. i think um a, a lot of young people, the ones I teach in college, for example, are just exceptional people. And yeah, I have great hopes with the way they're going to change the world, but I do wonder how they're going to do it when communication has changed so drastically yeah. where now, you know, you're, you're asking someone out on a text or you're, you know, yeah. that's, yeah. So I'm concerned and I'm also hopeful at the same time.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I don't think the whole internet needs to go. It's just, we need to, make the business. Oh, the internet's and, great. Yeah we, need, <laughs> yeah. we just need to mend it a bit. Right. Um, yeah. So what's your current meditation practice like?
0: So I meditate every day. Um, that was very helpful. I did the international uh, meditation teacher diploma in Mexico. And that was a Fabulous program and they really walked you through meditating every single day in different types of meditations Hmm. So, um, I don't use an app. I do use a timer and I really try to start with a body scan just to notice what's going on And then sometimes I'll do focused, uh, focus on my breathing, for example. And other times, a lot of times I just do open meditation Hmm. where whatever comes, I just notice it and move on. Um, when I'm thinking, I'll just say thinking and come back Hmm. to just noticing what's there. Um, I, I really I go in and out of noticing external you know sounds or what's going on around me and internal what's going on emotional what's going on with my thoughts hmm. and that's basically my practice but it changes I think it changes depending on where I'm at and what I need for the day and I just feel so fortunate that after doing the diploma and after being at that uh, the Buddhist inspired university that I have a. Uh, a lot of uh, strategies in my tool bag that I can pull out, so I don't just always follow one certain type. And I know some people do. Do you do that? Are you just one type? Are you a one type meditation guy?
1: No, no, I I, I am for periods of time, but I'm also mm-hmm. I, I think I'm still I'm in year seven, I think, and I'm still figuring out which tradition. And I don't know you don't wow. have to. You know, modern meditation isn't necessarily tradition based, but. I'm still, you know, I've, I've practiced in meditations inspired by Vipassana, Zogchen, and I'm actually now trying some Zen-style meditation. Um, Are you
0: looking at a wall, facing a wall?
1: Facing a wall, yeah. Yeah. And it's in very posture, it's emphasis on posture. And I also stopped using an app recently, which I actually think has been really rejuvenating. Um, for the longest time, I was starting with the Sam Harris meditations for yeah. twenty minutes, and then just sitting for longer after that. But and I love, I love, I, I, as you know, I'm a big Sam Harris fan, and mm-hmm. I think his app is awesome. But I have been more resonating more with silence, and the, and the Zen style is so simple that it's been it's been really nice to, to practice that way. So I'm not sure if I'll find a Zen, some part of me wants to find a Zen teacher and see if I like that, or I don't know. I guess I'm still discovering. What I think will be the path for the next few decades for me. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. yeah. And don't you think, okay. So you and I both talked about loving kindness, meta meditation. Yeah. yeah. And I think you do that and I do that.
1: That one's so hard for me. And I, that's probably, is it? Yeah. Which is probably a, something that I really need it.
0: Um, mm. I have a. What's I, hard about it?
1: My mind wanders. I'll, I'll bring, oh. I'll, I think, I mean, it might be an ego thing. It, it's like I, I bring. I love when it works, it's like the best thing ever. It feels like ecstasy, but, and I, you know, that open, selfless, warm feeling towards others is amazing. But um, I know, I just, I mean, it makes sense because I've practiced so much more on the focus based and the open awareness based. That when I I try to think thoughts of that in that way and conjure up that feeling of loving kindness, I find myself getting distracted and frustrated quite a bit. Oh.
0: Have you tried Tong Lin? Where mm, you
1: um, no? what's that?
0: How do I explain it? So if I'm really suffering with something, hmm. then I feel the suffering of everybody else out there with that. Hmm. And I breathe in their suffering and I breathe out whatever's needed to help that. Cool. So I um uh what would be an example? If if something is happening with one of my sons for example and I'm in distress I will feel the pain of all the mothers out there that have mm. you know have lost children or children are injured and I'll breathe in their pain and I'll breathe out peace or hope or love or whatever I'm I'm doing and that, that's it I it's not called meta meditation but I think that's another way to connect with the suffering of the earth and to send out yeah warmth and love yeah to those
1: yeah that's that's beautiful yeah
0: sometimes just repeating phrases like you do in meta yeah that may i don't know maybe you need some new phrases
1: maybe yeah um <laughs> yeah or just probably again this is just i need to practice it more because it's not something that i practiced a lot of and I, I expect to be proficient in it because i feel you know I'm well established in other in other styles, but no, it is, I think, a really important method. And I do think that sitting in meditation in general has made me more compassionate and less self-absorbed, But that style is so important, I think, to to cultivate. Um, mm-hmm. I should try to implement that into my routine. Um, so what when do you meditate? what what's your how do you get yourself? To do I
0: meditate it? in the afternoon. Okay. Um, in the morning,
1: I have to move and exercise, or else I can't calm
0: down for the rest of the day. Yeah, and um, I find the afternoons calming. And I started when my kids were little, and so um, they would. One of them, in particular, moves a lot, so I started with basketballs flying around the house and yelling and running and. Mm. I think that was really good. (laughs) I I think I read someplace that a monk or someone said something like, you can't really meditate unless you can sit in the middle of chaos and meditate. And so I would always try to remember that. And what it did is it it made it so that I don't have to have a quiet room. Yeah. I can just incorporate whatever's going on into my meditation. And it made it so I could center in in quiet or in chaos. And sometimes it's really hard to center in chaos, but I just take it as a good lesson, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm meditating in the afternoons, usually when there's a lot of people around and people walking up and down the street and dogs barking and yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the, and I I have, I don't have a room to myself Hmm. so that I could do that and I don't have a quiet space. So, um, I have a chaotic meditation practice.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, on that note, I love, there's one idea that you've brought up when we've spoken before. It's about, you know, your emphasis on, um, how important a daily practice is and how real that is and how, you know, Um, You know, I I am a big fan of retreat, but I also Mm -hmm. I think the core of the practice is in the daily practice and integrating it into your life, especially if you're a householder, quote unquote, like us. So what do you think? Why do you emphasize daily practice in the midst of a chaotic, messy, normal life?
0: Yeah, um, I know you and I have this discussion all the time where I feel like retreats are... They're I mean, the, what I know about them, and I'm very limited um, in my experience with them, but I know that they're ideal situations. So, for example, if I go to retreat, I don't have my family with me, I don't have to cook. Yeah. I, uh, you know, <laughs> it's quiet, it's usually beautiful, mm-hmm. it's the ideal pause, peace. And then I know um, a number of people who do retreats and don't have daily practice. And for me, it's the slog of every day, regardless of the situation, sitting that has made the most difference in me. Because yeah. if I go from a really peaceful situation back to stress and people really needing my attention, and maybe there's issues going on, and you know that's students, that's family, that's people around you, and I can't balance there because I don't have quiet and I don't have everything way in each it it I need it to be, then have I really achieved anything? Yeah. But if I can find that in a in a life that's demanding with a lot of different, you know, when you're a teacher, you have a lot of different things coming at you at the same time, and you don't know who's gonna show up to your door at any given moment. And, um, you know, you have students who come in really happy, and you have students who are in big trouble at the moment they show up. And how can you show up for them? Mm. And I don't know if I can if I don't learn to meditate in situations. And I, you know, there may be a teacher out there going, no, that's not true. But it's it's really helped me being mm-hmm. able to just be okay. I got to center again. I got to center for this. I've got to center for this. I've got to center for this. How can I mindfully listen? How can I be present? How can I not, you know, escape this uncomfortable situation? So, yeah. that's why I think the daily slog of meditation in whatever situation you have is helpful for someone like me. Yeah. Do you have an do you have an ideal situation to meditate in, Billy?
1: Well, no, I mean I, I love what you said there. I mean part yeah. I mean I I do it right when I wake up and then right after work, no matter what I'm feeling. Um and that that is great. And some mornings I sit down and the birds are chirping and I sink into this kind of amazing state and it's awesome. But other days, you know, I you know did too you know i just didn't sleep well or i drank too many glasses of wine the night before or whatever and i'm like well i got a headache but it's time to sit anyway and you mm-hmm. just have to be with it mm-hmm. and then yeah and then yeah some days after work i'm like well i decided to stop working but i have 17 projects that people need me mm-hmm. to finish mm-hmm. and sitting in that well that stuff's racing around your head is i think really helpful and yeah. And really hard. And really hard. Really
0: hard. Really
1: hard. Yeah. But that is where the, the real gains are. One thing, right? One thing in defense of retreat, as I you've had the <laughs> It'll
0: never work, but go ahead and try.
1: Yeah. Is there is a, a different kind of struggle where on retreat, I don't know, I find like sometimes when you're meditating, daily private meditation is, you know, set the time for 30 minutes. It's like, well, you know, in 30 minutes I get to go back to life. Um, so I, no matter how bad this gets, I just, you know, I'll push through. On retreat, if it's ten a.m., there's nowhere to go. You're meditating till you go to bed, (laughs) so you you really are forced to have. That's like a different kind of discomfort when all stimuli are removed. And as you know, uh, retreats are are, aren't uh, all fun and games. There can be some. For me, it's like a long, 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 lower intensity psychedelic trip where you're going to have some really good moments and some really dark moments. (laughs) You have to kind of be with all of it. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, so. I would agree with you. Yeah. In that one retreat you made me go on, <laughs> I I remember having those feelings, like you know, deep anger coming at, yeah. up of being stuck here and having to <laughs> meditate again and again. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Definitely. I also, you know, as you know, I've talked about the access to retreats. A lot of people don't have access. Um, right. I the one you that we sat together, that was an incredibly accessible accessible retreat and I'm very grateful to the teacher yeah. um, but a lot of these retreats are you know $2,000 and you have to take time off work and you have to leave your family and yeah. I do struggle with that
1: yeah especially if you're not if you don't have a daily practice and you feel like you need the the gorgeous mountains and the, the peaceful you know Buddha uh, bird bath water flowing while you meditate that's not right it's not how life is um, right yeah so what do you, do you have any strategies for when you, you're supposed to meditate, but you feel overwhelmed and you just don't feel like it? And or when you get the get up and goes, which happens to me still quite a bit where it's like, oh my God, okay, I'm just kind of waiting for the clock to go off. And you have to kind of notice that. What, um, <laughs> how, do you, how do you handle that?
0: Uh, Okay, so I have meditated for so long now that if I don't, I feel awful. So that's my my motivation. Mm -hmm. I know that. So I will be... And I had a great teacher one time that told me one minute is better than zero minutes. So that goes through my head. So I'm not stuck on I have to meditate for an hour every single day. I don't... I I try to, but... Mm -hmm. If it's 9 p.m. and I still haven't meditated and I'm exhausted, I just remember that one minute is better than zero minutes. Yeah. And I will just sit and see how long I sit for. And sometimes it's an hour and sometimes it's 10 minutes. Yeah. But I know that every single one of those seconds count. So that's motivating to me. And then you called them the get up and goes, that monkey crazy mind, right? <laughs> or you're, you're, um the it, I'm trying to think of what the word is in English. Um, they, when I went through the program in Mexico, um, they would have you observe specifically that. Mm. So, restlessness, that's the word in English, when you're super restless, that would be then the object of your meditation. Yeah. What does it feel like? Where is it hitting me? How am I doing this? Oh, look how funny what I'm doing. I want to look at the clock again. Oh, look at my mind. It's going here and there. Look, my legs want to move. Oh, my back hurts. Blah blah. blah. You're just noticing, 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 noticing the restlessness. Yeah. And um, that's a trick. And the other one, I'll just come to an anchor real fast. If I can't do it, I will pick an anchor, be it my breath, be it loving kindness, be it a body scan, and I'll anchor in. And nice. that helps me as well.
1: Yeah, that's, that's nice. Yeah, I, it is a, it is a good, good feeling does not that this happens every time. But when I'm in a state where I notice, I notice it arise, the temptation to check my phone or look at the clock. And then I watch it, I watch it, I don't try to push it away. But then I see it leave. That can be a wow, like that was just something in the mind, just like anything else. And it's not something I have to react to. That's can be an amazing feeling. I
0: know, it's crazy, right?
1: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um okay well are you ready for some rapid fire did we miss anything do you think
0: no i don't think so
1: okay let's do it okay go what's a book that you often recommend to others
0: when things fall apart pay my children
1: okay what's that about i guess this isn't rapid fire actually you know, yeah. So, yeah
0: billy you gotta pick it up i'll have to get that
1: for it's like a slingshot
0: it (laughs) is a how to sit with the uncomfortable that that's what life is
1: Mm.
0: not grasping not aversion this is this is what it is
1: nice nice
0: yeah it's yeah
1: if you basically what
0: she said is sorry when things get difficult oh well sit with it
1: (laughs) nice nice i need to read that yeah you've brought that up a few times i need to read that
0: yeah get on it dude
1: (laughs) If you were entering college today no. and you weren't allowed to become a teacher, what would you study and pursue?
0: Oh, I would be a lawyer. Oh, really? I'd be some, yeah, some loud mouth, <laughs> out for the good fight type person. <laughs> lawyer, what else does that? Politician, doctor, something. It would have to be something where I'm always in the game, always trying to, you
1: know, nice. work
0: on the social justice issues there.
1: Nice. Uh, what advice would you give your 25 year old self?
0: Meditate. <laughs> <laughs> Turn to mindfulness, not what you're doing right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, what would I give myself? Yeah. If I had, gosh, if I had just learned to pause back then, mm. if I just learned, I think mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness would have been great.
1: Nice. All right, if you were dictator of the U.S., oh goodness, what, what's the first policy that you would change that would improve public schools?
0: Well, they're getting rid of the uh, um, funding. Just more money? Well, we have unequal funding right now. Mm. So a lot of the funding is based on property taxes. So if you're in a neighborhood that has less, lower property taxes, your schools don't get as much resources. Um, and so we have low resource schools and high resource schools yeah. and they are completely unequal and so from the get-go from the minute you open the building there is not equality yeah. so if it was just one thing i could change and there's a thousand things i would change i would look at funding
1: yeah god the that disparity i think uh, dr taylor who you know from regis yeah he he had us read uh, Jonathan Kozel. Is that his name?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Savage inequalities.
1: Yeah, God, that was that. Mm-hmm. That's always. I feel like whenever I discuss politics or what we should do to improve, that's always like the first lever I would pull. It's like the the master problem of some kids get after school programs and high paid teachers with science labs and iPads, and other kids are in roach infested like f- buildings that are falling apart, and they are shown that society doesn't care about them from like kindergarten on. That's just like, that's the the issue. And then even even in some of the better schools, teachers are having to buy their own school supplies. It's just a, it's a, it's a disgrace.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, if you think of it, we have a free public education. And, you know, we're gre- that's amazing because so yeah. many countries don't. But it's a free, very unequal public education. Yeah. And yeah. I agree.
1: How would it's so? Awful. How would the funding? How would you do the funding? Do you know? Do you have a other than property taxes? Do you know? Do you have a clear idea on that?
0: No, I don't. I mean, it needs to be equalized, but more than equalized, maybe schools that need more funding get more funding. So, yeah. if you're in a school where you have a lot of parent involvement and you have a lot of um, affluent parents that can donate do we then give more funding that schools that don't have those opportunities? And in that, you know, that's yeah. a huge mess because parents would become very angry about that. Well, just because I can spend time at my kid's school doesn't mean that my kids shouldn't get the same thing. Hmm. But it's such an unequal playing field right now. And I know you've heard this from other professors at Regis, but – Equal doesn't mean every kid gets the same thing. Equal means, or fair, I should say, doesn't mean every kid gets the same thing. It means every student gets what they need. And wouldn't that be great if we could have funding to give students what they need? Imagine that. We would have the best education system in the world.
1: Yeah, I remember somebody giving an example, maybe it was you, of... If a kid is having a seizure in your class, you wouldn't ignore them because it's not fair to the other kids to stop class right. to go help them. Right. And that, that right. Kind of cut through it for me perfectly.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah. Okay. Last one. If you were, what, what, one piece of advice would you give to a new teacher or coach who's just starting off?
0: That your job is to make your content or the game accessible. So my, what I work with is uh, students who are bilingual, emerging bilinguals, bicultural. So in basketball, for example, if you have a player coming who is um, from a different country and a different culture and a different language, how can you make the game and the way you want to coach it coaching accessible to that student and that's a really broad situation so the first thing is to understand that athlete is going to go through culture shock right and i know we've talked about this in class that is really really hard when you come to a new country and everything is different and the most difficult of what's different of course is the um cultural rules that govern how we speak and how we act so how far, how close do I stand to my peers on the basketball court? How do I greet them? How do I show them I like them? How do I invite them over to my house? How? Do, I mean, all those, those, that cultural dance we do all the time. You know, how do I show the coach that I understand or that I'm intelligent if hmm. I don't have the language skills? So hmm. that causes huge distress among students and among athletes when they're going through culture shock and cultural acquisition. So first it's the understanding of that. And then as a coach or as a teacher, I can't just lecture. I can't just use words to explain. So how do I make it accessible so that player or that student can be at their best? And it's it's tricky and it's hard. And you know that's what I do with teachers. How, what are the thousand ways you can make something accessible so that the person you're working with can get it and have success. Mm. And, you know, when a student has success, then, then the light goes on and, and, life begins to happen. So, and that has to do too with your expectations, with any biases you hold as a teacher, as a coach, you know, how do you get rid of those? How do you check them? How do you acknowledge them mm. and, um, be able to work with people who are different from you.
1: Nice. Nice. That was great. Well, that was, uh, that was really great. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for doing it. Um, so nice to talk to you. You have an open invite. It'd be uh, great to do around two sometime. Cause I know we have <laughs> more to talk about. So thank you so much, um, for all the great work you do and for the impact you made on me, uh, and the help you gave to me as I was you know in college and graduating. It's really meant a lot. So thank you.
0: Well, such a pleasure, Billy. Thank you so
1: much. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, which you can find at billyhansonnet forward slash newsletter. This is the best way to stay in contact with my work, as I'll be sending out new podcast announcements along with other written content. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, or sending the podcast to someone who you think might like it. Thank you for listening and for your support.
0: It's a sauce.